Free Will and Franklin, making my way around Sacred Stone Camp. I've been running to all kinds of people from all over the world here, and I recently just met a man from Alaska. I'll let you introduce yourself, and uh, you could just say your name and where exactly you're from. My name is Fred John Jr. I live in uh, Delta Junction. My tribe is from Mentasta Lake, Alaska. I'm uh, Katie John, the activist for the last 30 years over subsistent right is my mother and I'm down here at Standing Rock. And like a lot of people you must have felt the call just to come and be a part of this so what personally pulled you to this place? I've kind of been an activist in native rights and uh, the right to live the native way and so I wanted to come down and when they, they talk about water, the right for water, the water is life, it got me interested. My wife's from California, and we, we live in California for just a little while. But down there, I found out how precious water is when you had to ration it, and only the rich people could could uh, use it, you know, literally any, any way they wanted. But those, the common people, it had to be rationed. They can't do their lawn or anything. But I know water is precious before. It's just that it really hit me really hard then. You said you've been an activist for 30 years. What are some of the um, concerns you have with your homeland of Alaska? What are you fighting for there? Because I know there's a lot going on up there. Well, in 65, when I was in the Navy, I, I walked with the black people in Los Angeles and got beat up. I didn't know much about being an activist. I just know that it wasn't right, so I, they asked me if I could walk with them, and I said yes, and we got beat up a couple times. Then later on, it was uh, my mom's fight for uh, our subsistence right, our, our way of life to hunt and to fish the way we always do in our village. And she did that for 30 years. It went up to the Supreme Court. She won that case. The state finally just uh, dropped the case because she invited the governor to her fish camp and and told him how she lived and everything. And, he, and all he said was, that day I learned more from Katie John than I ever did with all those uh, briefcase full and cabinet full of uh, lawyers briefing and everything. That one day taught me th- that, that they were fighting for something that was right and that was good. And so hearing that, you feel it's real important for uh, government officials and people in power that make decisions to visit places like Sacred Stone Camp and Standing Rock to see for themselves? I believe government officials should come here and visit. Government officials should come here and talk to people. I think the news media, they just come when uh, something drastic happened or something. Not saying the common, friendly face, the people that live here are so sincere in their heart and their belief and I believe that uh, they should come and just visit and be here and uh, see what's really going on instead of waiting for some sensational news. Get some enlightenment for themselves and open their own eyes. As the guy told me earlier, Buffalo Child, he talked about you used your two eyes to see, then you use your two ears to hear, then you speak after you take in the information. So you talked about subsistence living, you know, living off the land and living in your territory and not having to really shop uh, as much and, you know, take care of yourself with your surroundings. What is it that your people did for uh, subsistence living? You know, what do you do to uh, sustain yourself in their territory? Well, I live in a Copper River Valley, Nantas is the north, northern part. I'm 73 years old, so I kind of know a little about how to uh, live a subsistence li- 
life. I was taken away at the age of nine for boarding school, and I lost lo a lot of my language. I lost a lot of the things that uh, fathers and mothers taught the young people, like making sled, making uh, snowshoes and boats and fish wheel and all those things that we survive with, how to trap. I lost that, a lot of the things like that. But we still use fish wheel. We still go out and trap and uh, make money. When we were kids, we used a dog team to travel from village to village to trading posts to trade our fares. We didn't use money. In the late 40s, we used fares and we trade with a trading post. But uh, nowadays, the year 2016, we still uh, live on moose meat, we still live on sheep meat, on caribou meat, rabbits and all, porcupine. And our uh, stream there, our river, supply us with fish, salmon, trout, white fish, everything, everything that we need. We dry them and we smoke them and we save them for winter. And it's a big part of our life. That's, a, that's how we live. The government call it subsistence, us we call it a way of life. The state of Alaska does not recognize us as tribes, so we, they continue to uh, fight us, uh, our way of life, that they, they want to take away the, you know, the hunting and the fishing right, that we have just a little bit left of what we have. And that's, it's a, just a continuous battle in Alaska. And so does uh, water's life uh, down here at Standing Rock. That's what got, uh, got me interested, and I start paying attention to it. The only news I got was on Facebook. And my little grandson from uh, California called me up, called me and my wife up, and we've been praying and doing a lot of uh, wondering about down here. Anyway, he called me up and said, Dad, what's going on over there? And as far as I could explain it, I explained what's going on over here to him as far as I know, and my wife did too. And he said, I got a hundred dollars. I'll give you a hundred dollars if you go there. My wife said, that's our answer to prayer. We're gonna go. We don't have that much finances, but we are. Uh, my wife got me a ticket through. Uh, people help out in little, you know, on mileage and stuff and sent me down here. And there's two of my uh, relatives from my area came, came down, so they're taking care of me too. So you mentioned a boarding school and like losing your way of life. I shared the same story with my dad and his family taken away to boarding school and my dad leaving the reservation as a young child. How important do you think it is to try to reconnect in a, some sort of spiritual way or even in your own traditions to try to regain, you know, what we've lost? Like two generations, basically my dad and me, and I can't speak a word of my own language. I never heard my own tribe sing a song till last year. Yeah. So how important do you think it is to try to regain your ways where you come from? Um, what is that like for you? The boarding school hurt a lot of us and then our generation that followed us. My brothers and I were in boarding school in the 40s and, the, and I was in the 50s, the late early 50s, all through the 50s. And I lost my language. I lost how, how to live, how to do all those things, we, you know, to survive in a real harsh climate and a lot of the songs and everything. In my, uh, as a young man, I start relearning stuff that I, uh, I have lost, and it's been good for me spiritually. It has, I, I went into deep alcohol. I went into, uh, you know, substance abuse, mostly alcohol. It took me 40 years uh, out of boarding school from quitting. I quit millions of times, 
and I, I finally went into a native uh, recovery camp, started learning my ways and being proud of who I am again. And I came out of it, and uh, I'm walking right now, that good path, that red path. I'm walking, and I start telling stories about my growing up between two cultures, about a lot of the culture that I remember my parents telling me. And that's my teaching to the next generation and everyone um, that would listen, you know. And I've been telling stories that people wouldn't talk about. Missionaries put a stop to. I talk about medicine people. I talk about bush Indians. I talk about ravens and uh, the bad omens and all that stuff. I have permission to talk like that. My mother, Katie John, told me, he said, spread the information to, to the non-native people how we live why we live that way and everything and he said it'll be easier for our people to live their life without interference without being sued without thing so that's what i do i go to different school and talk even the old age home in san diego i they invited me to talk and the old people they they enjoyed even though some were sleeping through the whole thing <laughs> and i go to high school and i go to university of alaska which i i talked to I don't have that very fine English talk, but I talked to this English class there. Man, they, they stood up and uh, thanked me and everything. I, I, was, I was scared. <laughs> well, how important do you think it is to actually share our stories so people try to get a, some sort of grasp of understanding of like what you've been through, what my father and his parents and his brothers have been through? How important is that to you know, reveal our ways and let people know how we're living and how we're supposed to be living? Well, as far as I got, I, I, I talk a lot of, lot of story about the boarding school years, the punishment, the uh, separation were called numbers, you know. I was number 77, and I almost forgot I, I had a name. The first, My sister was five years old when they went in, and I was seven years old. And we never came home for over two years. And that two, first two years, we lost all our language. And then... Uh, my name, my number was 77, and my brother, two older brother got to me, your name is Fred, Fred John, don't forget it, it's not 77. We were called 77 on a, over the loudspeaker day in, day out, you know, our, all of us by our number. We live, we live that way, and we lost a lot, but uh, telling our story about boarding school lot of younger native don't know what we what their elders went through in boarding school the young native people a lot of them un, unless they heard from them most of the native people that i know either co uh, commit suicide died in the old age being in a prison that they built around themselves for their protection which i did for about 40 years when i went to recover and i started tearing down that building and looking out to the in outside world again where I was so afraid of. I know a lot of the others built a wall around themselves. My two sisters died died without taking the wall down. I got brothers that are older than me that died and a uh, couple still alive that they still have a wall around them, which is probably an alcoholic, most of them. And they never let the wall down. It's a safe place for them. And it was a safe place for me too, which I didn't know it was a prison. I built my own prison. When I when I took the wall down, I start telling up talking about uh, boring school years to the non-native, the white people, all uh, people of all color. 
I tell you, they didn't know it happened. They didn't know it happened in their own country. They were angry. They were very upset. Some even cussed that it happened, and they didn't know. And I sat there, and I looked at them, and I said, why did I have so much resentment against the white people for so long? And that resentment started going away from me. I, I, I start, you know, love started coming into me, into my heart again, where I start spreading that right now. I think uh, one thing I always say, you can't fight love. You can't fight love. We've been talking earlier this week with some other folks. We talked about intergenerational trauma, how it gets passed down from um, your grandparents, you know, and your, your parents and what happens to them. You know, if they get their language beat out of them or their culture beat out of them or punished from them, it affects their children because they can't pass it on. So how has it affected your bringing up of your children? I understand you're recovering from alcoholism. Talk about that intergenerational trauma and how um, it's affected your life as, as raising another generation, your children. I got married to a uh, non-native white girl from Southern California, beautiful blonde. <laughs> <laughs> you know, someone you see the cover of the magazine or something. But she stood with me. We got married when, when I was 33, and she was uh, 20, 19 years old. She came up to Alaska to teach women and water safety. And she was pretty active, kind of like a hippie type, you know, that uh, wanted to change the world. And she came into our village, and she wanted us to kind of revolt, but we just kind of laugh at her, you know. <laughs> anyway, she, we got married that year. My mother, I think, saw something in her that uh, we didn't see at the time. She kind of, she kind of got us together, and she been, she stuck with me through the hard time, through the alcoholic years when I'd get up and get drunk and disappear for about a week because I'm ashamed to be around them when I'm her, her when I'm drinking, you know. Not that I, I, I didn't love her. It's just that alcohol was more important to me that, at that time, and she stuck with me all these years. My, we got five kids. We got four girls. She's she's a college-educated girl, and I'm not. I just graduated from high school, but she uh, she she made sure the girls were prepared for college, and they and they did go. They did go to college. One of them, one of my daughters, a doctor. The other one got a master's degree in uh, business. I don't know much about it, but they and the others. Uh, my my son, he's a top-notch operator and carpenter built his own home they all live really good but one thing they uh, they keep asking me dad what is this dad how come how come we're Indians how come we don't we don't we don't do you know the uh, songs and everything they didn't know I went to school and I start telling them and through their question through their uh, inquisitive mind and everything as little half-breed kids they're the one that helped me start going, looking, searching back into my memories of my childhood. And I start telling them stories about how we live. I taught them how to share. I taught them how to give. I taught them about our pot lodges and our ceremony. And they start, uh, and they, even though they didn't learn the language, which is a pretty much important part, they, they're out there, they're activists. They, they're looking at me right now down here they know I'm down here. They, they want to know everything going on, and I and uh, they've been they've been there. My wife, 
knew all these years for some reason she sat and waited while I sat there and drink and drink and drink. She knew that there was something in my heart that was going to come out for the good. And when I finally put that bottle away and, and uh, start uh, finding myself, finding that path, that road I'm on right now, she just nodded her head. She knew all along I was going to do it. And I don't know where she knows it from, but she knew. That's a beautiful story. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, and I know you've been um, searching out your past, but have you learned any words or anything that you want to share with the, the people that may hear this from your uh, traditional ways? Yeah. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you.